Yeah, Lord's Day 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lord's Day 17, we talked about the resurrection. And then we took, we took three weeks. Now it's all coming back to me. We took three-week break, talked about the Reformation in Italy. And, uh, and then we had one week before Easter. We talked about the resurrection again. So that brings us to Lord's Day 18. Um, and now we're going to talk about Christ's ascension. Christ's ascension. And this, this is important because uh, I think that we, we tend to overlook the ascension a little bit. Uh, it's okay, his life is important. You know, he earned merit and righteousness for us through his obedience. His death was obviously important because he paid for our sins upon the cross. His resurrection was important because, you know, that's the vindication that he is the righteous man. He is entered into glory, uh, having accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. The ascension is what? It's kind of like he just flew off to heaven and, you know, that was it, right? Um, that's probably, that's how I, I think I thought about his ascension. And so on the surface, it might seem like little more than a mode of transportation, right? He flew off into heaven. There's that scene in Acts 1. Uh, in fact, let's just read it because I think sometimes I assume that everybody knows this stuff and um, that's probably not right of me to do that. Uh, so as you know, Luke, he ends his gospel with uh, Christ's benediction and uh, a, a little bit about his ascension. But then you get more in his volume two, which is uh, the book of Acts. And so um, if we turn to Acts chapter one, it says, in the first book, O Theophilus, which book is that? Luke. Yeah, Luke, the gospel. So that, that's volume one. Acts is volume two. In the first book, O Theophilus, remember that this person he's writing to, Theophilus, scholars debate as to who that is, is mentioned at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that's his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, okay, so this is he's talking about the period between his resurrection and his ascension. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, verse 6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, great question. It shows that they still don't quite understand Jesus' mission. They're thinking, um, okay, he's going to bring this messianic rule to Israel, kick out the Romans. Um, it's going to be glorious. Um, you know, they, they're confused about the mission of Christ, even at this point, because they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit and all things haven't clicked yet. So there was the, you know, all the signs that he did, the resurrection, the, the, uh, resurrection of Lazarus just before he goes into Jerusalem, that blew their minds. Then there's the death on the cross, you know, and then he's raised from the dead, which nobody was ex expecting. And so now they're just amazed, you know, and they think, okay, surely now he's going to make uh, heaven on earth in 
in Israel. And so they still don't get it. And he says to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, and this is important, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the thesis statement for the book of Acts. If you read all 28 chapters, it follows that program. They're witnesses in Jerusalem, chapter 2, Pentecost. Then they branch out into all of Judea, okay, the area where Jerusalem was. Then into Samaria, the half-breeds, uh, and then to the ends of the earth. In, in other words, populated places of the Gentiles, like Rome. And so you start in Jerusalem, you, you, if you read the 28 chapters... It's not a haphazard collection of stories. It follows very carefully an unfolding of Jesus' prophecy here, that they were witnesses in all those places. And it ends with Paul uh, in Rome, in prison. And, uh, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, because that's what you do if someone ascends into heaven. You gaze into heaven. Like, what the heck did we just see? And uh, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Footnote, no secret rapture. All that left-behind nonsense is bogus. There's no such thing as Jesus returning invisibly, and then all of a sudden people are zapped up out of the world because he's going to come in the same way that he went. And how did he go? Physically, visibly, gloriously. And he'll return, in that, and suddenly. And so his return will be physical, glorious, sudden, and, um, and in person. So there's this ascension. And uh, what does that mean, though, that he's in heaven? It just means that he's out of sight, right? And we don't, we don't see him. Um, but his ascension into heaven is important because it means that he continues in heaven as our prophet, priest, and king. And, uh, you know, I've been a pastor now for going on 15 years, and um, there's several things that I have seen again and again and again in the understanding of the common Christian that I meet, uh, mostly misunderstandings. There's certain things that are, are, have become predictable for me. And one thing that has become very predictable is um, people's surprise that Christ is still a man and will always be a man. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow... The idea, the notion that he is no longer a man crept into the teaching that many of us received, I guess, um, growing up. Or, or rather, it wasn't emphasized that Christ continues as our mediator. Um, you know, I think I brought this up last week. It was the only 15 years of being a pastor, the only sermon illustration 
that I had probably half a dozen people come up to me that day and say, boy, that was the best sermon illustration, and I just thought about it on the spot, which is never wise for a preacher to do. And even as I started, a little voice in my head was going, don't do it, bad idea. And, uh, but it worked. And uh, the Chihuahua uh, illustration. So, you know, if there was a planet and, uh, you know, your father says, you got to go save these Chihuahuas that I made, they're messing everything up and they're all falling. And, uh, but it means you got to become a Chihuahua. And uh, if you only had to become a Chihuahua for, you know, 30, 33 years or whatever, and then die, and then reappear, and then you came back to Earth, and, uh, oh, man, done with that, you know. Yes, the Chihuahuas will be with me in heaven, but, you know, I'm not. No, you've got to remain a Chihuahua forever. Because people still say, like, what's the sacrifice? It's like, it, it just floors me. It's like, here's the sacrifice, God the Son is a man, now, forever. And then I've even heard people say, well, yeah, but he doesn't mean he has, like, organs. Or blood. I'm like, no, he does. He's real. He's, we have every reason to believe he's human, as human as you. He even said, do you got something to eat, to those who are doubting? Why did he say that? It wasn't just because he was hungry, but it was to show them he's still human. Where did we get the idea that he wasn't? So if you had to remain a chihuahua for all eternity, now you're talking sacrifice, big-time sacrifice. I probably shouldn't have added that chihuahuas are the, the, at the very bottom of the chain of being when it comes to dogs. And we all know that American Pitbull Terriers are at the top of that mean. So chihuahuas are a chew toy for my dog. But uh, no offense to anybody that owns one of those. Is this about chihuahuas? So, okay. Yeah, right. That's a good point. That, that's, you know, John, that's a very good point. And I think a lot of it has to do with what we're going to talk about here, the ascension. So he flies off. What does that mean? And what's going on right now? And Christ's ascension into heaven is actually a, a huge, major point of the book of Hebrews. Think about how the Hebrews, uh, the ones that... Um, the writer to the Hebrews was writing to. They were under persecution from fellow Jews. These Hebrews were Christians. They were under persecution by non-Christian Jews. And, uh, they're, and they're starting to feel the weight of their profession uh, you know, in the world. Okay, we're Jews. We no longer get the temple, the sacrifices, the feasts, all these outward, tangible, beautiful things. We have Christian worship, which has the tangible, outward beauty in the Lord's Supper and the and baptism, but it's so reduced from what we had before. And the writer is trying to say, look, you had type and shadow before. Now you have the reality. And they're like, yeah, but the reality's gone. And so what he's saying is that, yeah, but what does that mean that he's gone? What does it mean that Christ is in heaven for us? It means that he continues as our prophet, priest, and king. I think that's the point that a lot of us don't quite understand. So let's look at the Heidelberg here real quick. Um, and, and notice this, notice, when we think of the Apostles' Creed, what do we confess about Christ? He was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
Stop right there. He, and, well, and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, it, he ascended into heaven. So the Heidelberg has been expositing each one of those lines. Here's what we mean when we say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, etc., etc. Now when it gets to ascend into heaven, notice that there are four questions. There's actually more questions on his ascent than on his resurrection. His resurrection gets one. And, and uh, there's more on his ascent than any other of uh, those lines. And so let's think about this. And th- there was a reason for that. It has to do with debate um, between Calvinists and Lutherans around the Lord's Supper, about the Lord's Supper. Because believe it or not, our doctrine of the Lord's Supper has a lot to do with how we understand the ascension of Jesus Christ. Um, this has an incredible bearing on, our, on our, uh, our, belief, our beliefs as Christians. So, question 46. What do you mean by saying he ascended into heaven? Yeah, now notice, this is a great answer. Um, we mean, first of all, it was a real ascent. It was physical, uh, geographical, local. It's not um, metaphorical. Uh, you know, we could talk about, you know, there's people who believe that the resurrection of Christ is just a great story that influences you. Well, he's risen in my heart, kind of like how Elvis lives, you know. Tupac lives. Where did that one come from, anyway? Um, you know, all these ideas, you know. Well, this person was so inspirational to me that they go on living in my memories. Okay, the resurrection of Christ isn't like that. We're talking about a real resurrection, a real uh, body and soul coming back together again. The only human whose body and soul has come back together. There's another common misconception amongst uh, modern Christians today. Um, but notice also what it says. It's not only real and local. It says, and will be there for our good. Christ is in, a, is in heaven for our good. That is the point of the book of Hebrews. Where is this prophet, priest, and king, the Hebrews are saying? And the writer's saying, he's in heaven for our good until his return. And uh, until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so what does he do? Well, he continues as our prophet. Uh, our, a prophet, you remember, is uh, one that reveals the word of God, re- represents God to the people, and uh, proclaims this revelation. And Christ, of course, is the supreme prophet. The book of Hebrews opens up by saying, long ago in times past, God spoke to our fathers you know, by various ways, dreams, miracles, all kinds of different special revelation, the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. His son, Christ, is the climax of all of God's revelation. We don't need more revelation than Jesus Christ. Again, Paul's point in Colossians 2. And Christ continues there as our prophet, empowering the New Covenant Church. Upon his ascension, well, think about it. 
upon his ascension, he gives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent upon the church. So there's this great exchange, in a sense. You know, heaven, earth, oh boy. Victimized markers by precious covenant children. Uh, There we go. There we go. Heaven, earth, Christ ascends into heaven. And remember, just before Christ's death, in his upper room discourse, he said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Upper room discourse, John 14, 15, and 16. Been called the greatest sermon ever preached on earth. And it's followed by the greatest prayer ever preached on earth, John 17. He ascends into heaven, and he sends the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who essentially comes from the the age to come, empowers the church on earth. So, Acts 1, Christ ascends. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends. He's of another... He's another of, of the same quality. The Greek word for another speaks of the same essential quality as the Son. Empowering the church now, providing the church with more special revelation, giving us the completion of the Bible, what we now call the New Testament. So remember, at Christ's ascension, the Gospels haven't been written yet. Um, Romans hasn't been written yet. Saul of Tarsus hasn't even... Um, been converted yet, hasn't even heard of Christianity. There's no Christianity yet. So he goes to heaven, and then as our chief prophet, the revelation of himself is then codified by the power of the Holy Spirit here on earth so that we have his prophetic word. And we listen to prophecy, as the Reformers put it, every time we hear the word preached. It's not new revelation, but it's that special revelation that the Holy Spirit has brought through the apostles who are commissioned by Christ before his ascension to go and bring that word. And that same word, that apostolic doctrine, is now proclaimed. And in that sense, we can say God's word is being brought forth. That's why uh, some of the Reformers called preaching prophesying. Not that it's new revelation, but it's God's special revelation being exposited and proclaimed. And so, and that prophetic work continues in the ordinary ministry today. And, 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 it, and it cannot be done apart from the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ because all the Word reveals Jesus Christ. It's ultimately, the, the, the Scriptures, as Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, he said to the Pharisees, but these are they that testify of me. And remember Luke 24, he said, you know, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted, you know, everything that concerns himself. It's ultimately all about Christ. And so in heaven, Christ has assumed this role uh, as, as prophet. He also continues as our priest. Now, what, is a, what does a priest do? If a prophet represents God to the people, bringing the word of God, making it known to the people, okay? And essentially, again, that's what we hear on Sunday. 
What does a priest do? He represents the people before God. And the priest, of course, would make sacrifices. He would enter, the high priest, remember, would enter in to the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle, if you had a bird's eye view of the tabernacle, it's this long, uh, open area with walls. The temple was essentially the same thing. And he had a big tent here. Outside, you had the basin. You had the table of uh, burnt offering, the sacrifices. You had all these little tables set up in the courtyard where animals were being slaughtered. You had these gates here. You'd enter into the gates. You'd get in line. It was brutal business. Blood everywhere. Priests here. You bring your, you know, there's a line probably going out the door. And you bring your sacrifices. You get in line. And you'd seen these things, you know, since you were a kid. And then the burnt offerings were here. And then nobody could enter here except the priests. This is the, the holy place. And there were three things in the holy place. Anybody remember? There's the table of showbread. So like a table over here with a whole bunch of bread stacked up. And that ultimately speaks of Christ as the bread of life. I mean, this is the interpretation of the New Testament. Um, what else was there? The lampstand, the menorah. The menorah action there. Christ, the light of the world. What else? One more thing. No, not the ark, in the holy place. The holy place. Haven't entered into the most holy place yet. The, yeah, the little altar of incense. Very good. Right here, right before the big curtain. And so that's going up like the prayers of the saints. So you got those three things. So you can't enter in unless you're a priest. And only the high priest could enter in past the big curtain. The big curtain here. And here's where you had the Ark of the Covenant. I won't give you a quiz on what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, I love it when you guys are like, I know, I know, I know. And so there was a manna, a jar of manna. What else? Yeah, Aaron's staff. Very good, Isaac. And it was, it was the staff that had budded. Remember? It had a branch on it. And, um, and one more thing. This is the most important thing. Tablets. Why is that important? What's that? Sorry. God's law. God's law. But here's the deal with that. This is all covenant theology. Cool stuff. The, uh, why, why were there two copies of the Ten Commandments? No, 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 no. I don't mean like they killed, the, they broke that one. Now you got to go back. I got to go back up that mountain. I always think of Moses. You know, I got to get new people. I got to go back up the mountain. No. no, when he brought them, there are two copies. Now we all know because we saw this, we saw this in movies like the Ten Commandments, that there are two tables. They're kind of shaped like this, right? And you got commandments one, two, three, and four on one side, the first table of law, which is uh, the commandments that are done to God. And then on the second table, is commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, which is done toward neighbor, right? Wrong. We got that from Sunday school material and from movies. But that's not how it was done. I know it's all in our head. And we even talk about the first table of the law being to God and the second table of the law. That's not why there were two tables. Each table had all ten commandments. Why? Now, no, no... What's that? Yeah, the same reason why you think when you sign a contract, here's your copy. It goes back to a covenant ritual. When you made a covenant with somebody, with another king, there would be two copies. 
Here's your copy. Here's my copy. We know what's required. We know what we need to do. Okay, if you don't do it, you're going to die. You, your people, I want you dead. I want your family dead. I want your whole fam- your house burned down to the ground. That's, and they would say this kind of stuff. You know? And uh, here you're going to walk through the animals so we know this is what you're going to do. Uh, but if you keep the covenant, then I'm going to supply you with armies and keep peace on your borders. And you're going to have to pay me tribute each year, but that's how it all worked. When they, did, when they invoked the gods, they would often take one of the copies and they would put it into uh, the, um, the temple of the god. So these are things that were common and understood throughout the Middle East, throughout the ancient Near East, in, uh, in the world of the Israelites. And, uh, and, then, and so they did the same thing with the ark. They put a copy of the Ten Commandments inside the ark. Because remember... Israel said at Mount Sinai, all this we will do. All this we will do. Huge scene to the plot of the story. That's what, you, what the whole Old Covenant's about. Well, you're not doing all that you, were, you promised to do. As we hear tonight from Hosea 9, basically Hosea is saying, you know what? That promise your, your fathers made at Sinai, you're not doing it. And there's still a copy of the Ten Commandments there in the holy place, most holy place. All right, a little deviation there. Yeah, we don't have it like the Ark of the Covenant, which is in a museum right now. Yeah, I'm in a snarky, sarcastic mood today, huh? But it's true, we don't have any of this stuff. It's all gone. The only thing we have is the testimony of Scripture. Um, we, don't, we lost the Ark of the Covenant. No, the Book of the Law. The Book of the Law. Yeah. Yeah, the Book of the Law. Right, that's correct. That's correct, yeah. The whole temple had to be rebuilt, remember, you know, upon the, the return. And, uh, but yeah, since AD 70, all those articles are gone. And uh, I mean, who knows, maybe at some place, but it doesn't really matter, you know. I mean, I know I made a great movie back in the 80s, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they opened it and all their faces melted, which was like the most horrific thing that I ever saw as a kid. But... Uh, you know, they, that, I would get in line to open up the Ark of the Covenant. You don't have anything to be afraid of because Christ has fulfilled all that. I'd also get in line if they said, we're going to put a microchip under your right hand or your forehead. I'd be the guy they could test it on because you can't, you can't unjustify me through a microchip. And um, those are all superstitions, you know. If, otherwise, the gospel we can't trust. And uh, Christ is the fulfillment of all this stuff. So... But I think there's a reason why in God's providence we don't have it. We can't find it anymore. We'd worship it, yeah, just the same way that the Israelites worshiped so many things um, that God had touched in the, in, the, in the past. Anyway, getting back to the ascension. So the, the high priest was the only one who could go through the, the big curtain here. And you know when he could do that, on the Day of Atonement, only one day a year. Now, when the high priest went behind the curtain, could you see him? Well, no, he's behind the curtain, right? He is doing intercessory work on behalf of the people of God. He would go there to offer blood from the animals on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on what was called the mercy seat. He goes behind the curtain. Now, where do you hear that language in the New Testament? In Hebrews, 
the writer of the Hebrews says Christ has passed through the curtain. His ascension, okay, is essentially doing this very thing, but not into a, 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 a holy place made by hands, but into the very holy place that is the reality. Because in many ways, this looks like a cosmos. You know, you have earth, and then passing through the heavens and into the very presence of God. Straight through. And Christ, according to Hebrews, has gone behind the curtain, the real one, in the presence of God, and he has offered the blood of himself. And it is, a, it is an acceptable sacrifice. God receives that sacrifice. Now, he will emerge from the tent and, uh, you know, re- return visibly one day. But right now, he is there, just as you wanted the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Get in there for us. It's for our sakes. Get in there and bring the blood that was sacrificed on the altar, bring it in there and lay it on the mercy seat. Christ has done that with himself, which is the reality that all of those sacrifices uh, typified. You know. So the ascension means something. He's there for our good. Here, let's go through the rest of these, uh, these questions. 47, but isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Now, here's where we get into our doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Because if Christ has ascended into heaven, can he physically be present in the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper? No, because he's in heaven. He's physically in heaven. That's, he has a real body and, a, and real blood. And, and if we don't understand that, then we really start misunderstanding what communion's all about. But can he return? Well, yeah, but when will he return? When we, yeah, at the end of the age, on the last day, Christ will return. Last day. So, now here's where there's a little bit of debate. Because um, our Lutheran brothers, wanting to emphasize the uh, Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, as a means of grace say that the bread and the wine don't change into the body and blood, but somehow, in some way, the body and the blood is with, the substance, substantiation, is with, con, the, um, the, the bread and the wine. Um, where we would have an issue with that is that, well, how can Christ's physical body and blood come down from heaven when the angel said that he will return in the same way that he, he ascended. We're waiting for that day. Now, the, the, the potential danger there is for some people to say, yeah, it's just bread and wine. That's all it is, and it doesn't really do anything. It's just a memory. That's what Zwingli said, and that's not correct. That, that's even a worse error than uh, thinking that somehow the bread and the body and the blood is with 
the bread and the wine because it is a real means of grace. It's a communion. The word communion means to participate in and to share with the blood, the blood and the body. And this is what the Heidelberg Catechism is getting at. Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is not absent from us for a moment. And then look at the next question. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? not. Since Christ is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of his humanity is taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in. Okay, this is really important here because it, we're talking about the two natures of Christ. Our Lutheran brothers would say wherever Christ's divine nature is, so there his physical nature, his human nature is present. And we would say that cannot be because he's a real man. And as, as a human being, you can't be in more than one place at one time. You're finite. But at the same time, Christ is also infinite, infinite. He is omnipresent everywhere. He is immense, filling all things in his divine nature. Now, to our Lutheran brothers, when we say that his divine nature exceeds the bounds of his human nature, it sounds to them like we're separating the two natures into two different persons, which was an error of the ancient church called Nestorianism. You might remember that. It was you know, refuted at the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century. But when we hear our Lutheran brothers say that wherever his divine nature is present, his, his human nature is also present, it sounds to us like the ancient heresy of Eutychianism, uh, where the, the two natures are so blended together that you essentially have one nature. And uh, so there's been this tension between... Uh, the Lutheran view and the Reformed view. But what I try to do is emphasize our similarities because we're closer to the Lutheran view than any other view. Both Luther and Calvin confessed that what we receive in the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ. The, the body and the blood of Christ. They never disagreed on what we receive. That's what we confess in the Belgic Confession, that when you partake of the bread and the wine, you are partaking of the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. The question is not what we receive. The question is how we receive it and where. And reform, the Reformed Confessions and the, uh, the Calvinistic Reformers understood, and this, a lot of this came from Peter Martyr Vermeulen, that uh, Christ's human nature remains in heaven. We partake of that by the Holy Spirit in a very mysterious way. We don't know how that happens, but that really happens. So that when you partake of the bread and the wine, you are truly receiving the body and blood of Christ in heaven by means of the Holy Spirit, and you do so through faith. 
It's not just a memory that triggers, oh yeah, he died for me. It's even more than saying, as surely as I put this in my mouth, so too Christ has died for me. It's also, when I partake of that, I am truly being more united with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, apart from which there is no salvation. Because my union with the high priest, who is behind the curtain, is so firm that he is there representing me. And apart from his body and blood, which is the sacrifice, there's no salvation for me. And I get to partake of more of that every time that I come to the supper. So that it's more than a memory. If, if, this, if this in any way, in the least bit, surprises you, go back to Heidelberg Catechism, questions 75, 76, 77, 78, 79. Read them again. That's why we've got to keep going over the Heidelberg again and again. And go back to Belgic Confession, Article 35, and read it again. Um, that's the understanding. We understand in a different way than our, our, our Lutheran brothers that we receive the body and blood of Christ in heaven by means of the Holy Spirit. That's what the word communion, koinonia, participation, fellowship ultimately means. But not that he returns and he comes down and he is physically present, physically present here. But rather that uh, we, in a sense, are lifted up to partake of him in heaven. But that union which we both confess, cannot be broken. Because we are, he is representing us there, and we are united with him. Any questions on that? Yeah, Kyle. So when people say, Jesus is here, Jesus is everywhere. Because he's the son of God, and God is omnipresent. And uh, he is present everywhere. Yeah, I know, and that's why you never hear me say um, the real presence of Jesus Christ. I know a lot of Reformed people say that. I think that's a terrible term. The real presence of Jesus Christ is, is everywhere. And the Reformers, never, they didn't really use that so much. We, I've heard some uh, Reformed people say, well, our view of the Supper is the real presence of Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, the real presence of Jesus Christ is all over the place, and it's in worship and everything else. No, the, the view is that we receive the body and blood of Christ in heaven. Um, and we, so we want to think about the two natures, that his divine nature exceeds the bounds of his human nature, but that something special is happening with us and Christ's human nature in heaven every time we partake of the bread and the wine on earth. And if you scratch your head and you say, well, I don't understand how that happens, praise the Lord, it's called a mystery. It's called a mystery. There are three great mysterious unions in the Bible. First is the Trinity. How can God be one and three persons united? Answer? Correct answer is, I don't know. He's God. Second mysterious union. Christ is 100% God and 100% man. How can that be? Answer? I don't know. He's God. See, we're so afraid of saying, I don't know. You know, <gasps> uh, what's going to happen if I say, I don't know? Uh, it's okay, you're not John MacArthur. You know, he's, he feels like he's got to know everything. And you don't, it's okay if you don't know certain things. These are mysterious unions. 
Third mysterious union is Christ in heaven with his body on earth. How is it that I commune, here's where the word communion comes from, with the body and blood of Christ in heaven when I partake of the bread and the wine here on earth? Answer, I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. And, and, uh, but we have to believe that mystery as much as we have to believe the two natures of Christ and the, and the doctrine of the Trinity because God has revealed it. And uh, Jesus said, if, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life. And the Apostle Paul said, the bread that we break is a communion, a participation in the body of Christ, and the cup which we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ. And uh, there's mysterious union there, and it has to do with the fact that Christ is in heaven. Ascension. So, no ascension, no Lord's Supper. Uh, no Lord's Supper, you know, no food for the journey. Um, it, it's really that important. There was another question. Uh, Yolanda, first. His Holy Spirit, yeah. Yes. That's right. 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 Catechism of Yolanda, right there. That's awesome. Very good. You couldn't have said it better. That's excellent. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly right, Yolanda. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is what is... Remember, his job is to make Christ known to us. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he won't testify of himself, which is why I don't like the dove symbol, because that testifies of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't testify of himself. He testifies of Christ. If you're going to have a symbol, that's a better one. He He shines the light on Jesus. He will not testify of himself. He will testify of me. And he's the one that makes Christ known to us. He's also the one that blesses the Lord's Supper to us, uniting us more with Christ in heaven. A great mystery. But that's also why you don't want to partake of the Lord's Supper you know, in an unworthy manner. In other words, just thinking of it as a common thing, you know, um, as was ha- happening in Corinth. Um, because this is something that the Holy Spirit uses to unite us further with Jesus Christ. And... Uh, uh, a great mystery indeed. David, you had a question. Uh, so, is it wrong to think of the bread and wine as a symbolism of Christ's uh, you know, flesh and blood? That's a good question. I think, it's, I think it's wrong to think of it only as a symbol. Because it is a symbol. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Which is what's always um, imprinted on the front of the thing. It's, it's actually back here. I purposely hide it. Because they, all, they don't sell these things to you unless... They're made by Baptists. And they don't sell these things. So it says, this do in remembrance of me. Okay, that's true. That is true. But what did Jesus say before that? This is my body. This is my blood. I want one that says, this is my body. This is my blood. Because that's equally true. But that would freak out every American evangelical. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's magic. Um, 
but this turns it into a mirage. It's just doing it in remembrance of me. So it's both. And this is what Heidelberg Catechism, question 75, so beautifully summarizes. That, um, see if I can do it from memory. How is it signified and sealed to you in the Holy Supper that you have a part in the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross and all his benefits? That uh, Christ has appointed this outward washing. No, that's the baptism. Christ has commanded me and all believers to partake. I'm looking at my son for hope here. Christ has commanded me and all believers to partake of this broken bread and eat of this, or drink of this cup. Um, oh, I'm messing it up. Yeah, you're reading it. Let's see here. Uh, let's see here. Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink this cup. With this command, he gave this promise. First, there's two things. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Okay, we get that much. As surely as I, and Christ has died for me. Got it. Symbol. Effective. True. It's not wrong to think of it as a symbol. But then it goes on. Second, and here's the part that might make us nervous. As surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves, the minister, and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of bodies, Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and by believing to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. There's the union between your high priest behind the curtain and you out here. We are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although he is in heaven, ascension, and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we, are forever, we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. In other words, Christ, the head, is here in heaven, and the body is here on earth in that way, and we're joined together by one spirit. And so something great happens, and it goes on, in the Lord's Supper. All right, we'll have to finish Ascension um, next week because we didn't get to question... Um, 49, which is um, really the capstone of this whole section. And so, all right, let's stop there. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ's ascension and all of its implications. We thank you that Jesus continues in the most holy place, the reality in your very presence as our high priest. We thank you for his prophetic work and the Holy Spirit who makes Christ known to us in the preaching of the word. And we thank you that he is our eternal King, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We bless His name. We thank You for Him. We put our trust in Him. And thank You for blessing us, Lord, even with these great mysteries, that we can be encouraged and assured of Your love for us. For we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.